We are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11 over the next two weeks. There are sermon notes in the bulletin if you pull those out. This is a very challenging topic that we're coming to now because it's regarding suing. We're talking about going to law, uh, going to a law court with other people. And you have my sermon notes in front of you, and they're a little bit complicated. And that's because sometimes law is complicated. Sometimes going into dealing with lawyers and and the legal system could be complicated. And I, and I tried my best to simplify it. I really, really did. But I also wanted to be clear. So we'll, hopefully we'll make that, we'll make that um, clear as we move through this. Because this is a fascinating topic. It um, deals with people's um, personal um, money and relationships with one another. And it could be a touchy subject as it deals with, as it deals with courtrooms. Let me ask a question. Make sure you listen. Who has not been in a courtroom? Yes, you have. I knew that you would fall for this. You have. You were with me. Golly, I'll explain later. Look at that. Everyone has been. Most everyone here has been in a courtroom. And what's kind of interesting in this text, we'll see that it was very commonplace for people to be in a courtroom. I'm amazed. I thought I'd see a few people who have not been. Maybe some of the young kids, because they're all gone, but... You know, and I look at my life, there's been situations where, you know, I've been in courtrooms. I've been, I've been called as a witness. I was called in a big trial, um, and I got contaminated, but that's a whole other story. There's been filings I've had to do, and that was interesting. Um, but uh, we live in a very organized world, and so did the people of... The church at the church of Corinth, they lived in a very organized world and people had courtroom situations and we've got courtroom situations because of conflict. Although I do have one courtroom situation that's kind of interesting because, you know, courtrooms can be intimidating and blah, 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 but there was one situation. It's a true story. I don't know if I've shared this with you, but I had a friend in high school and I'll just give you his first name. His name was Mark. And Mark had... Six car accidents before he turned 18. He had three before he turned 16, and he had three from 16 to 18. And when Mark got his sixth accident, he was like 17 and a half or something like that. He lost his license. And Mark's father was tied in with the police and all this other stuff. But then, and so Mark had to go to court, and Mark lost his license. And so here we are. It's our senior year. Because I'm only 17, and, and Mark comes to me, and I've got a little freedom because I'm a good student. I'm allowed to walk the halls in high school, and we sneak into the counselor's office, and Mark says, Mike, I know that I just turned 18. He just turned 18, and he says, I should get my license back. And because when you turn 18, what happened to you as a minor should, should, should you know, be wiped off. And I said, well, uh, Mark, I'll take care of that for you. I said, what judge were you with? And he gives me the name of the local judge. And I, I said, let me, let me get in the phone book. I find the judge's office. I call up and I say, hello. And the secretary answers the phone. The clerk answers the phone. This is attorney, and I, I don't know what name I gave, but this is attorney Mike Matissick. Now, you got to remember, I'm a 17-year-old, squeaky, little voice boy. And she says, she says, yes. And I said, well, let me explain to you about the case, this case. And she listened to me, and I said, 
for my, for my client, I would like him to get his license back. Could you make sure that he gets his license back and we can come and pick it up? She goes, one second, sir, I'll go look up the file. She comes back and she says, you're absolutely right. He can have it tomorrow. <laughs> I turned him. I said, thank you so much. I hung up the phone. Mark went and he got his license the next day. Now, I don't know if I'm in trouble. I don't know <laughs> if I, should, if I could, should have got away with that. Or if the lady was on the other line saying, there is some 17-year-old boy thinking he's an attorney, you know. Um, so I don't know. Alex will tell me, Mendoza will tell me later if I'm in trouble. I don't know. But uh, listen, um, what blows me away is when we look at this text of Scripture is how, we, when we think of like ancient cultures, were these people into courts as much as we are? And I think, yeah. Look at verses 1 to 11. The Apostle Paul says, does any of you, when he has a case, and we're talking about a legal case, against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous uh, and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Verse 5, I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Verse 7, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, or or, or adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of God of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. Wow, it's really interesting where this text takes us, even with verses 10 and 11. What I want you to see, if you have your sermon notes in front of you, this is just really clear. We'll emphasize this over the next two weeks. Believers are not to use the world's court system against other believers. And it's gonna be a function of trust and reliance and do you really believe God? There's some principles I want to go over. If someone get the lights, I got this slideshow for you that will help us understand. I think these are really critical. These are some legal and lawsuit rules for Christians, okay? And here's the key. Know the rules. Know these rules, okay? I want you to understand, you can have somebody arrested, even a fake Santa, okay? I tried to put someone that we went all getting, you know. You can have someone arrested. How do we know that? Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, talks about the government being, being used for its authority. And, and so when we're talking about, if you saw a Christian and they were doing something wrong, there was something they needed to be arrested, we understand they, should, they can be arrested, okay? So don't confuse civil lawsuits with criminal actions. We're primarily talking with, about civil actions in this text, all right? And, and here's the thing, too. This is important. You can take an unbeliever to civil court. I want you to understand, this text is not saying that you can't sue an unbeliever. I think you can. And sadly, in my own personal life, I didn't have this clearly taught to me back in the 80s. Somebody did something to me, and I could have gone to court, and, and I didn't because I was thinking, wow, I want to apply 1 Corinthians 11, and I don't want to sue somebody. Well, that was wrong on my part. You can take... Um, an unbeliever 
to civil court. So some civil lawsuits are appropriate, all right? So there is a time to sue, all right? But you need to know this. You going after money, and also know this, you going after money is not wrong in a lawsuit, okay? But you just have to watch being greedy, and that's what I wanted to put that there. You have to watch being greedy, and we'll talk about that. There is a sense of, you know, we, we can deal with people who go above and beyond, and they're being greedy in the way they do lawsuits, okay? And I just realize frivolous lawsuits are wrong. Frivolous lawsuits are just lawsuits where, you know, you're just causing a problem for the company. You don't really have a basic case, but the company's going to have to, you know, they're going to, the company or the person you're going to file against just has to go through the motions of hiring an attorney and they're going to incur a lot of cost. And it's not really a case of substance, okay? And so frivolous lawsuits are something that's a problem in our country today because people do file them. So here's um, Bart Simpson saying, I will not file frivolous lawsuits a hundred times over or whatever. So... Number four, you are to use the church for civil lawsuits against other believers. And this is where the text is taking us today, okay? God expects you to use church leaders for civil actions. So the idea of Christians judging, and that's why I wanted to read 1 Corinthians 5, because the context that this all flows out of is where the Apostle Paul has just said, don't you like judge people inside the church? And again, we always throw that, do not judge lest you be judged, is a passage that's often taken out of context. There is an aspect of Christians judging and Christians judging other ones. But why wouldn't you use the church for a court case? Well, there's some bad reasons. Sometimes you're unwilling to forgive and you just want to, you know, you want to really stick it to somebody, okay? And you're not willing to forgive because, you know, you go within before the church, there's going to be a sense where also there's going to be a sense where, you know, someone's hurt you, but you've got to forgive them. You know, I'm not going to do that. And, and that, would, that would not be what God would want us to do. Number two, you are unwilling to lose anything from max dollar to small amount because there could be a sense where as you go before the church that all of a sudden maybe you can't get triple damages or something like that you know you came before the church the elders the pastor or whatever and they're talking to you about the situation they'd agree with you yeah you should get some some type of remuneration but we're not going to give you like the treble damages or something like that so you think wait if i went to the if i went into the the world's court system i'll get more money you probably could but that would that be the right thing now, I'm not talking about the fact that, you know, necessarily owed it or something, but maybe you're trying to bring some type of hurt upon someone. So well, that ties into your unwillingness to forgive. And then number three, you're unwilling to have a ruling based on God's principles. And this can get a little more technical, but I think there could be a sense where maybe sometimes in the world's court, you might win on a technicality. But in God's court, you wouldn't win on that technicality. And you know it. And so you don't want to go before God's, you don't want to go before the church. You don't want to do it because you know that you'll lose. And um, we'll talk more about that over the next two weeks, but there's a sense where you've got to always say, I'm going to play by God's rules. I'm going to play by God's principles. And so to be clear, none of the above is is acceptable. Your unwillingness to forgive, your unwillingness to lose anything, your unwillingness to have a ruling based on God's principles, Okay. So here we go. So let's look at the details of 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 11. As you guys get the lights, and 
what I want you to do is see, as, as we come to this text, I wanted to read some background material to you, because I found this fascinating. It's gonna, I'm going to read a little bit longer than I typically do, but I found this really fascinating. So a couple of authors write this. Paul writes in, in light of the Roman law, which allowed Jews, for instance, to apply their own law in property matters and Christians who are not yet distinguished as a separate class. Um, they must have had the same privilege. According to rabbinic interpretation, it was unlawful to take cases before Gentile judges. Customarily, three judges were to handle cases amongst Jews. So I don't know if you caught what I just read. We, we, from writings that we have from back then, the Jews, being a powerful organization, even though they were in, under Roman rule, said, hey, we'll handle our own cases. We'll handle our own law cases. And so the Jews handled their own cases amongst themselves. And, you know, we see this even like with the trial with Jesus, right? With, before the Sanhedrin, it was his own trial. So we got an example that this isn't just someone that is telling us stories about this. This is something that we saw recorded with the life of Jesus. What is interesting is like the, the church, they believe, was grandfathered in under those provisions. So like when the Apostle Paul is writing here in about 68 AD, remember, Jesus has been dead for like 30 years Okay, and resurrected, and, and, and the resurrections happened around 30 years earlier. The church is still living under these rules that were, were they were seen like as, a sect, as, the, as a sect of the Jews. And so I just find that a fascinating little fact that they were able to have their own court system. Okay, so. The Greeks in general, one author goes on the right, and the Athenians in particular were known for their involvement in courts. There was a Greek playwright, which I often find fascinating that we know these um, playwrights, a Greek playwright named Aristophanes and had one of his characters look at a map and the map was where Greece was located. And when it was pointed out to him, he replies in the play, there must be some mistakes because he cannot see any lawsuits going on which was indicative of the, fact, uh, of the fact that they were such a litigious society. Um, the, the author goes on to say this, the legal situation in Corinth probably was much as it was in Athens where litigation was a part of everyday life. It had become a form of challenge and even entertainment. One ancient writer claimed that in a manner of speaking, every Athenian was a lawyer. When a problem arose between two parties that they could not settle between themselves, the first recourse was private arbitration. Each party was assigned a disinterested private citizen as an arbiter, and then two arbiters, along with a neutral third person, would attempt to resolve the problem. If they failed, the case was turned over to a court of 40, 40, 4-0, who assigned a public arbiter to each party. Interestingly, every citizen had to serve as a public arbiter during the 60th year of his life. If public arbitration failed, the case went to a jury court composed of form of several hundred to several thousand jurors. Every citizen over 30 years of age was subject to serving as a juror, either as a party to a lawsuit, as an arbiter, or as a juror. Most citizens regularly were involved in legal proceedings of one sort or another. The Corinthian believers had, become, had been so used to arguing, disputing, and taking one another court before they were saved that they carried those selfish attitudes and habits over into their new lives as Christians. That course, was not, was, that course not only was spiritually wrong, but practically unnecessary. 
For, Christ, for centuries, Jews had all settled their disputes either privately or in a synagogue court, and they refused to take their problems before a pagan court, believing that to do so would imply that God, through his own people, using his own scriptural principles, was not competent to solve every problem. It was consor- considered a form of blasphemy to go to court before Gentiles, but Greek and Roman rulers had allowed the Jews to continue that practice even outside of Palestine. And under Roman law, Jews could virtually try every offense and give almost any sentence except that of death, which ironically we know that they tried or they did do with Jesus. Okay, as we as we know. Okay, so here we go. And the Apostle Paul must be aware of this. He knows that this situation is going. And what he's going to do is he's going to give four challenges. And, And these four challenges are like to smack them alongside the head and say, listen, wake up. You better understand what you're doing. And I want you to hear verse one, and it's this. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? And fill in the blank with the, are you really using the world's legal system amongst yourself? There's the challenge. And with the second fill in the blank with the answer, you should not do this brazen, B-R-A-Z-E-N, act. It's like, how dare you? How dare you? Does any of you, when he has a case, and this word for case is a, is a legal situation, against his neighbor. Now, we're not dealing with who's right and who's wrong, but the idea that you're going to law before the unrighteous. The unrighteous. And this is just an expression for the unbeliever. It's not like they're doing anything wrong. It's not like they have corrupt judges. And I know I've lived long enough, and I had a situation in my life where a friend of mine went before a corrupt judge. And true story, he got, he got sent to jail. And his father was tied in with the, with, um, the underworld. <laughs> These friends I had. Okay, and um, and so he didn't want to tell his father. He didn't want to tell his father he was going to jail, and so he finally said, "You know, Dad, I thought I could handle this on my own. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't um, want to tell you. I got into this little trouble. And now the judge is telling me I have to go to jail. I got six months in jail plus this big fine." And so his dad made a few phone calls, and they met in the judge's corporate. Then they met in the judge's quarters and the judge looked at my friend and looked at his father and he said um um why didn't you come to me beforehand why didn't you come before you know if you would have come beforehand this would have cost you like five hundred dollars and this is 30 40 years ago he said this is going to cost you fifteen hundred dollars now and um what we're going to have to do is i'm going to have to go back out and i'm going to have to take that sentence off and i'm going to have to embarrass myself and so you're going to have to pay more and so he did. And so unrighteous. Absolutely, absolutely unrighteous. And I've been told of people that have paid off judges in murder trials. And I've not been able to verify that. But I know from my hand, myself, from almost the firsthand evidence, that's exactly how my friend got out of his jail sentence. So you look at this, and the world doesn't operate by godly principles but he's not necessarily calling the system necessarily unrighteous. That's just another way to call unbelievers unrighteous because they don't meet God's standard. We who become believers in Jesus Christ, we're righteous in God's eyes because Christ 
paid the penalty that we owed. We now have his righteousness credited to us. Unbelievers, in God's eyes, are still called unrighteous, and they're under judgment. And so one of the things that's been on my mind lately as I've been witnessing and going door to door, I, I, I try to challenge people all the time, and I want you to always be aware of this. I don't go around presenting Christ as how he's going to make somebody's life better, okay? You know, like, you know, if you become a believer, your marriage is going to be better, you're going to be a better parent, you're going to be a better friend, better worker. I just shared this in Sunday school, and I want to reiterate this for the church. I want to remind people all the time, your life, you stand guilty before God. You need Jesus Christ because you are a sinner, and sin is going to be judged. Unrighteousness is going to be unjudged, is going to be judged, and you are guilty. And if you don't get that taken care of through your faith in Jesus Christ, you will pay the penalty for it. And please get that message out to people. So anyway, the unbelievers are called unrighteous. And he says, not before the saints, the holy ones. So there's this sense here, you know, where he's basically trying to get them to like wake up. And, you know, we would do this maybe with our children when, you know, we don't, our kids maybe don't sometimes take out the trash, okay? And they forget that's their chore and they're supposed to do it. I don't necessarily come up and say, how dare you forget to take out the trash? Because when I use the word dare, it's usually something of significance, you know, if I caught my kids going into my wallet and stealing money from me, which I haven't, but if I, I don't think I have, have I? <laughs> um, if I, but I know parents have caught that and, and lots of money. And you're like, how dare you do that? that? You know, that's pretty significant. That's crossing a line. How, how dare you do that? I want you to understand from the Apostle Paul's perspective, the church has crossed the line. They've, they, whatever reasoning, whatever justification they've had, they believe it's totally justified for them to bring about this lawsuit. And it's brazen. It's absolutely brazen. And so when the Apostle Paul uses the word as a case, the phrase has a dispute is a technical term for a lawsuit or a legal action. And the verb here, to judge, comes from a Greek word, krino, which is in the middle voice of a sense of going to law, or bringing something for judgment. So we're very clear. We're dealing with a recurring um, situation, and this is something they're doing. They're going before the ungodly, the unrighteous. So how dare you do that? So hopefully you'd say, wait a second, that's all it takes, one challenge. I'm not going to do that, right? I'm not going to do that. But the Apostle Paul begins to build upon that. And now we pick up in verses 2 and 3. And he says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know, verse 3, that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? And fill in the blank. Here's the second challenge. Do you realize your future role as judges over the world and angels? Okay? And the answer is, by the challenge is, no, you don't get it. By the very fact that you are using, fill in the word with the blank with the word using, you're using the world's court system. You are not going to, you are not going to the best judges now. Wake up and use the right judges. That's what he's trying to say. It's sort of an argument like from the lesser to the greater. I mean, and let's look at this. He says, do you not know, verse 2, that the saints will judge the world? As we've studied before, this is the third time now the Apostle Paul has used this. He'll use this expression ten times in this book, and interestingly enough, six times in this chapter alone. Do you not know? Do you not know? 
And when someone says, do you not know, by implication, it's something that you've been told before. And, you know, it's like, do you not know that you're supposed to do this? Do you not know that's wrong? Do you not know? And here's an interesting thing. He says, do you not know that the saints, okay, saints, holy ones, you know, there isn't a thing where you, we have a test and some, you know, we, we try to evaluate whether someone becomes a saint. Everyone who's a believer is a saint, is a holy one in God's eyes, okay? He says, do you not know that saints will judge the world? So by implication, like, where in the world are we judging the world and in the sense of controlling the world? This is fascinating because you would think that this would be something that would be explicit. And like, well, if someone says, do you not know, where are we supposed to know? And, and, and there isn't a, there's a lot of debate, like, well, how are we going to judge? I think the best understanding of this word judge in the sense of judging, in the sense of ruling over, making decisions over, and where would this best play, take place is, I believe, when we share the throne, oh, please, well, we want you to turn there. We're going to share a throne with someone. We're going to share a throne with Jesus, and it must be in I believe the administrative responsibilities he gives us. So turn in Revelation chapter 3, because there's no other text earlier that necessarily, other than like, you know, we'll be given charge over cities that Jesus talked about. But in Revelation chapter 3, let me make sure I get the right text here. Um, Yeah, Revelation chapter 3, verse. 20, famous verse, you all know, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. I believe that's a call to salvation, okay? Um, But then he says in verse 21, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on what? My throne. (laughs) We get to sit down on your throne? And I believe this was Jesus who was talking without going into our background on the book of Revelation. And he says, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so after reading all week and looking at different texts, um, even maybe a passage that kind of gets uh, taken out of um, or taken from Daniel chapter 7, which I'll talk about in a second about, rule, about saints ruling, I believe this is the very best text that we've got for us having a ruling and function over the world. But you say, well, when we're ruling and reigning, when, in the, when are we going to have rule and reign over like unbelievers? And the only time, to me, theologically, this fits is in what is called the millennial kingdom. Revelation chapter 20 talks about a thousand-year reign, and that's when theologically I believe the church We'll be in the redeemed bodies. We will be in our redeemed bodies, but there will be people who are in non-redeemed bodies, and I think we'll have a ruling and reigning function, and God will allow us to have some type of responsibility from an administrative standpoint. None of us are supplanting Jesus. I believe he rules and reigns. He's the ultimate authority. Please, please understand that. But I think that concept of Revelation chapter um, chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 and 22 deals with our responsibility of, of having some type of ruling, judging responsibility. So that, 
must have been taught by the Apostle Paul as he taught on end times. So when you're in Revelation, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, and he says, do you not know that saints will judge the world? I believe that's what he's taught. I think it's something he's a, he knows that he's taught them. He's made them be aware that this is our ultimate calling. And so if ultimately, he goes on in verse 2, if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? I mean, basically, if ultimately we're going to have this incredibly high responsibility, and it must be by implication in the next life, aren't you able to be people who can handle court cases amongst humans? And the answer is absolutely yes. You know, the, the, the question should be is we better start recognizing if this is our future role, then and we're supposed to be different people and, and the leaders that we have are supposed to be different, then absolutely they should be able to handle the smaller cases, the things that are matters of this earth, which obviously sometimes we get overemphasized on. We think they're the big things. And God is saying, no, this world is passing away and also it's lust. You should be able to recognize that the fu- your future role shows you as someone significant. And I was trying to think of an illustration. You know, Mark Twain wrote that book, Prince and the Pauper, right? Um, where a king and a, uh, a, a prince switches with a poor person their, their rules. And, you know, it's a very fascinating book, and it's an interesting book where the prince looks like he's a pauper. But when it's all said and done is the prince is doing things that he should not do because of his ultimate position that he will eventually one day be the king. And when it's all said and done, he finally comes back to his position as prince and you know the world's made right. But for us, the reality of it is, is that we are all people who are child of the king. And we are people who have a ruling and reigning responsibility. And God is just saying, act like it now. Start thinking about this now. And, and I want it to play out in the way you handle disputes amongst one another. And, you know, so the, you have to say to yourself, okay, I'm going to go by your principles. I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to, and I'm going to, I'm going to trust that God, you have a, a pastor and an elder. However, a church sets up a, a, a jurisdiction over a, a case, how it's going to work out. I'm going to trust that they're going to make the best decisions. And, and so this is a matter of great faith. And, and so, you know, you want to be able to say, I'm going to trust my leaders, and this is why you expect your pastor, you expect your elders, you expect your deacons to have the characteristic traits that are above reproach. And just, just quickly, we have time, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, and I want you guys to know this, um, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 1... And, chapter of Titus, there are like 22, 23 attributes that an elder slash pastor have to have. And you look at these traits, these are the models of maturity. Maturity in the sense that they are complete in Christ. These are people who have to stand out in this. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 says, it's a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It's a fine work he desires to do office of overseer an elder verse two an overseer then must be above reproach the husband of one wife temperate prudent respectable hospitable able to teach not addicted to wine or pugnacious 
there, go through this list and then continues on for the deacons. I want you to know every Wednesday I take myself through this and I challenge myself, am I living up to this level of characteristics? Then I pray for Carl and I pray for Sean. Then I pray for our deacons. I pray for Wayne and, and, and Paul and, and Ben and Rolando. And we just pray, I constantly, and then others who will rise up to be men who have this type of character. Because it's critical, because our church is nothing if we don't have this type of leadership. And you can imagine, if somebody had a court case and they came and they thought, oh wow, the pastor's biased, or the elders are biased towards this person. No, we've got to come up with honest, above reproach character, Right? Because, you know, if I tell you the stories of unrighteous judges and you think, well, wait a second, how do I know if this judge isn't bought off? Well, you better believe no elder, no pastor in a case should ever be bought off. And that would be horrendous. That would be, that would be something that I think when you face God, you wouldn't want to be in that position if you were an elder or pastor who did something out of a biased standpoint. So um, you better believe the church... When they're having a lawsuit, an individual should be able to say, I need to go to my pastor, I need to go to the elders. They help to bring this resolve because I can trust in them. And so you should read those characteristics because those characteristics, and you should pray for me and the elders and the deacons that we have these because it's critical that not only do we have it, but that you have it. Because I think as you're praying for it, you'll say to yourself, boy, I need to be above reproach. I need to be faithful in my marriage. I need to be faithful about being hospitable. I need to be someone who knows the scriptures. I need to be somebody who's not addicted to wine. I need to be somebody who's not pugnacious, gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Okay, And I think about that all the time because I'm going to stand before God and he's going to hold me accountable for all of these attributes. This is not a small thing being a pastor. This is not a small thing being a teacher. God tells me in the book of James it's a higher calling, a higher level of responsibility. As my wife reminded me, because like I got to tell you, this week I messed up. I did something wrong. Real small, tiny, I said something. Okay, but And then it's like, oh, you, you, all you got to do is say that and cuts like a knife. But then I tell her she's absolutely right because I've got to and I, and I work hard and part of being a person hopefully of integrity is when you mess up you confess and you move on okay um, so understand this is serious so turn back to first corinthians first corinthians and he says okay do you not know that saints will judge the world so that's my best understanding of how saints are going to judge the world i don't know if in the final judgment like the sheep and goat judgments that we would have any ruling there's nothing in there that like from john chapter 5 of jesus where he's been given all authority to make judgment i don't think it's going to be our position to whether people are getting into heaven or hell so it to me it was more from a management standpoint that's how i looked at that and, and that's where the the, the um, millennial kingdom comes into place now if we're talking about things on into eternity that would be interesting and i don't have uh, anything other than speculation which i'm not going to go into for that about us ruling and reigning over the world but look at as he continues and he says do you not know that we will judge angels and and so this was something they should have known and again the only theology we have is that Jesus was made, is ultimately higher, you know, higher than angels, and he's going to have a ruling and reigning function over angels. However, these angelic beings are going to rule and reign. Again, in the millennial kingdom, into eternity, we're, we must have some type of rule and reign. And I think it was out of this passage, yes. I think it was out of, when in this passage, there was this quote from the book of Daniel. Um, yeah. 
from the um, Septuagint version of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verse 22. Um, It talks about, um, oh, it says, saints will judge the world, and and maybe that only applies to us having ruling, reigning over the world, and, uh, and not necessarily angels. It's... I, looking at this, looking at my notes, um, I just made that confusing for you. The Daniel passage deals with verse two. There's not anything specific other than the fact that the Lord Himself will judge fallen angels in Second Peter two four, Second uh, Peter two four, Jude verse six, um, that angels are ministering spirits in Hebrews one fourteen, and that they are people that will give God glory. But other than that. There isn't a specific passage on exactly how we are to, to rule and judge angels. So I, it's kind of an interesting on this one where he says, do you not know? By implication, then, I believe he's taught on this, and we're learning from it. Does that make sense? I think it's like a reverse process. So that's what I've had to think through. So I don't have anything specific on how you're going to actually judge angels, but now I know that we are. That's how I'm looking at it. So if you follow that, I know now that we are. And because I recognize that I'm going to have this ruling, look at the next line. How much more matters of this life? And that expression, matters of this life, was, a, is a, was a, um, a, an expression for like the everyday matters, the things that go on in life. And he's basically saying, okay, he says, um, you, you should be able to handle the small things. Like the things that make life go. If you're going to be having this responsibility over angels, and all of us somehow, some way, not just I think the pastors and the elders, somehow, some way, we're going to have these incredible responsibilities in the age to come. Start thinking ahead. Um, start realizing that this is where you're supposed to remember where your future lies. You're one day going to be the, like the, the prince who was the king, okay? We're going to be people who have incredible positions in the kingdom to come. Then start acting like it now. So look at that. Do you realize your future role over judges? Hence, if you do, please, then start using those judges now. Lose that court system now. And you can say to yourself, wow, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to have to trust, right? Isn't it interesting? And what I thought to myself is, some of you may not have any lawsuit against any other believer now or any case, but I want you to make the resolution today to say, I will commit to this. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the situation is going to be, but I will follow this because I'm going to trust God. Now, we'll talk more about it next week because it gets the third and fourth ones even become more elaborated but i wrote as i started this it can be a very touchy subject and i have not been in a situation where i wanted to take another believer to court but i do know that certain court situations arise and i know people who have had very good cases and they've chosen not to pursue it and and you would think because we had a situation once where a person was really taken advantage of it in, this situ- in, in our church, and the person could have sued them, and they didn't. And because they didn't, you would think the person would be very thankful, but they didn't. And you just want to say, you snot, okay? Because really, you know, when you're dealing with a lot of money sometimes, 
you know, and someone should at least be grateful, and they're not. But God knows when you have that forgiving type of attitude. And I know as much as it can hurt, and sometimes you have to deal with a financial hurt, but you have to recognize God says, sees it. John MacArthur says this, um, Christians are not to take other Christians to worldly courts. When we put ourselves under the authority of the world in this way, we confess that we do not have right actions and right attitudes. Believers who go to court with believers are more concerned with revenge or gain than with the body and the glory of Jesus Christ. Disputes between Christians should be settled by and among Christians. If we as Christians with our wonderful gifts and and resources in Christ cannot settle a dispute, how can we expect unbelievers to do it? Paul insists that Christians are able to solve disputes always. Let's believe it. Father, I pray that as we come and we deal with this situation, and perhaps nobody has a legal dispute right now, but Lord, that it's challenging us to say, even though I don't have it, I'll commit to it because I'm gonna trust you, and I'm gonna trust your process, and how I'm hoping, God, that our people understand this process. This isn't that they can never initiate a process and they can come before the church, but God, that if they are in a situation, they will not go before the world because the world operates by a different set of rules and principles. And may we trust, God, that your rules, your principles will give us the best decision possible. And Lord, that's what I'm hoping grows in each and every one of the people here, their level of trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.